Welcome everybody to the School of Obedience. My name is Tom Pullen. Thank you for joining today. God bless you. Let's get into this. Today I want to look at popular Bible verses that are used out of context. And I say popular because these verses are very common in the charismatic church and they are common in the wrong way. In fact, a lot of the times when people are praying or in situations, you hear these verses being quoted. In the charismatic church, people are encouraged to memorize these verses and declare them. But when you go through the verses in context, you see that they are being used in the wrong way. And I just want to go through them because the deal is here, if you believe wrong, you're going to live wrong. You are going to expect wrong. And so many people struggle with their faith these days because they're like, I've been declaring this verse, I've been praying this verse, and God is not moving. And people are being manipulated, being deceived because we don't want to read our Bibles, we don't want to spend time in Scripture, or we just want to believe everything that comes from the pulpit. And we end up living a Scripture in the wrong way, doing something that is incorrect, but it's based on Scripture, and therefore expecting God to do something in return but what we are doing is against the Bible because we've been taught something out of context and we've believed it and we've lived it. And a lot of people are just deceived. So before we get into this, I just want to encourage you, read your Bible and have it in your mind that the Bible was not written in chapter and verse format. Each book of the Bible is complete in itself. Genesis is a book on its own. When you are reading a testimony, when you are reading a novel, it's like a story in a novel. You don't break down the novel into chapters and verses. You read through the entire novel to get the full and complete story. And this is the same thing with the Bible. When you read Genesis, you read through the entire book to get the complete story of God. Don't look for yourself in the Bible and you start picking out verses and you start declaring Scripture in the wrong way. For example, it says in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then it goes down in creation and says, And God said, Let there be, and there was. And God said, Let there be, and there was. And then later on, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And what people get from that is, now they say, God spoke things into existence. We are made in his image and his likeness so we can speak things into existence. We are like God, and we start declaring in our life, let there be, let there be, but nothing ever happens. 
we say we have to constantly declare, let there be until it happens, the story of Genesis, the story of the Bible is God, who he is, his interaction, his relationship with us, his love for us, his grace toward man. It's not about us being him. It's not about us doing what he did. We are not God. We cannot create things with our mouth. What you are supposed to do, it starts in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God. This tells us that he's the main character of the book of Genesis. He's the main character of the Bible. The story is about him. So when you're reading through the Bible, you see how God created everything. God's interaction with the with the world he created, with the people he created. You see what God did. Don't focus on Adam in the Garden of Eden. Focus on God. How Adam, when he sinned, God's reaction to Adam's sin. God making a promise that the seed of the woman will come prophesying about the coming Messiah how God reacted, how God covered man in his nakedness. And thereafter, we look at man's relationship with God. When Cain and Abel came to God, that's not about, oh, Abel brought a tithe, so God respected him. It's about God's relationship with Cain and Abel, that God's justice in this world of injustice, we see from the beginning God's justice and mercy, and we see God's interaction with man throughout the Bible. And we start in Genesis, reading the whole book of Genesis, and in that we see where man went wrong and how God in his mercy protected and covered man. That's what you look for in the Bible. You look for God. You search for God in the Scriptures. In every verse, in every page of the Bible, you find Christ. Christ says, Moses wrote about me. He didn't say he wrote about you. He says he wrote about me. The scriptures are full of Christ. You don't pick out verses and make them about yourself. When you're reading the Bible, every page of the Bible, see God, see his love, his mercy, his wrath sometimes, his justice, see the authority of God, see God's love for man, that if we trust him and obey him, he will keep us, he will watch over us. Do not pick out verses and start swinging your hands in the air with an imaginary sling and stone saying, I am David, killing the Goliaths in my life. You have no Goliaths in your life. You may be having a difficult time in your life, but you have no Goliath in your life. David killed Goliath. There are no spiritual Goliaths. There are no financial Goliaths, health Goliaths. We all go through the journey of life and experience the human experience, the ups and downs of life. 
But when we find that God is always a constant in our life, it gives us a greater hope for the next day. When we believe wrong, we live wrong. And instead of coming to a place where God is this awesome, mighty, glorious King, worthy of reverence, worthy of majesty, glory, to be worshipped, to be obeyed. God is now a means to an end. We're holding his word against him instead of obeying it. Instead of coming to God with our heads bowed in worship and reverence, we're shouting at God because things are not working out the way they're supposed to. But yet scripture says, God says of himself in scripture, I heal who I want to heal. I kill who I want to kill. I make sick who I want to make sick. I make alive who I want to make alive. And that's what we don't realize. God is God all by himself. We need to come to terms with the truth so we can have that experience with God, so that we are not distant from God. So I want to go through these verses, and these are not the only verses that I used out of context, but I just want to go and show you how they are used out of context and what the Bible actually says. We are going to read through the verse and see the context of the verse so that we can understand what the Bible says. And this is to teach us, read your Bible, ask questions, do not be deceived, beware of false teachers. Let's get into this. The first verse is 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 22, which says, touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. I'm not going to go in on this because I did a whole teaching on touch not my anointed. I'll link it in the card just above. You should see it on your screen right now. If you haven't heard that teaching, you can go over there and you can listen to it. But briefly, this verse is used as a threat to warn the members of a congregation that you do not ask questions of the man of God because he's anointed or he's a prophet of God. If you ask questions, you will bring a curse in your life and sometimes even death. But when you look at the verse in context, this is actually a song of praise for what God has done for the founding fathers of Israel, how when there were few, God protected them, and he told the people around, the kings around them, touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. It is a song of testimony of how God kept Israel. You can go and see the teaching and fully understand what that is about. The next one is Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 21. And this is what Proverbs 18, 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So now, if we go to Proverbs chapter 18, and we read from verse 20, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. 
He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Now this is the deal here. This verse is used to say that speak life because you have the power to give life or to kill. You hear people saying that somebody died because there were many people that were speaking against them. Somebody is failing in their life because a believer spoke negative about them and the words of that believer can create life or death. First of all, this is not about your interaction with other people. It's about you. It says, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. It's got nothing to do with you cursing people. It's got nothing to do with you having power over somebody else's life, that if you speak death, things in their life won't work out, or they will actually literally die. It's got nothing to do with that. We have no power over other people. God has power over all men. Not us, not by our words. Everything in this world is subject to God. He allows for something to continue, whether good or bad. He allows for something to stop, whether good or bad. It is Him. We do not have power to speak anything to life. We do not have power to destroy somebody's life. How you look at this verse is that what you say has consequences on your life. There are repercussions for you to the words you say. Death and life are in the power of the tongue for you. There are consequences of death and life in your tongue for you. You will eat the fruit of your lips. You will be filled and satisfied by the fruit of your lips, good or bad. You create a situation of death or life in your own life by what you say. I just want to show you a verse before we move on to the next one. I want to go to the book of James, chapter 3. It says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. 
for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring put forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salty pond yield fresh water. You understand here, this is what he's saying. He's saying with the tongue, we can set our own lives on fire, our whole life set on fire by hell fire because of the tongue. So that's what I'm saying. Proverbs is saying death and life are in the power of the tongue for you. Not that you can destroy somebody's life, destroy somebody's business because your tongue is so powerful. There, he's saying the tongue is so evil, it can set your whole world on fire. You've got to be careful. Use your tongue for righteousness, death and life. What you say with your mouth can lead you to destruction or to eternal life. You will eat the fruit of your tongue. And just a side note, it's better and wise to be quiet. I often marvel at people who say, that's how I am. I speak my mind and I don't care who it hurts. I don't care what people think of me or what they say. That's me. That's my nature. But there's the Bible. You've got to watch your tongue. Speak righteousness. If you have nothing righteous to say, if what you want to say is against Scripture, keep your mouth closed. Let's move on. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is a big deal. This verse, let's read from First Peter 2.22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This has nothing to do with physical healing. Because now what happens is you get people saying, by his stripes I am healed, by his stripes I am healed. Yes, you are, but not physical healing. It's talking about the healing of your soul, the healing of your soul from the consequence of sin. He's quoting here from Isaiah 53, verse 5, which says, He was pierced for our transgressions, 
he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. This is a spiritual healing. This is a spiritual restoration. Sin separated us from God. Sin destroyed us, made us filthy and unrighteous. We were wounded. We were crushed in every way. But Jesus came to take on that. Dying on the cross has brought us spiritual healing. We cannot save its physical healing. That does not make sense. So does this mean that the believer that served God faithfully his whole life and lived in absolute obedience to the word of God but died of cancer at the end of his life, does that mean that Christ was not a part of his life? Does this mean that a believer who in his past life or her past life was promiscuous and were infected with the AIDS virus and have since repented and are now faithfully serving and honoring God, but they have that virus in their body and it's not been healed, does this mean that they are not saved? If this verse is about physical healing, does it mean the believer who is living with blindness because of their old age, they come into the end of their life, their eyes have gone dim, they can no longer see that they are not believers because they're not walking in healing. A common disease in our modern world now is diabetes. There are people on medication, some people taking insulin for diabetes, a, a lot of people. Does this mean that these individuals are not believers and they're not saved because they're not living out this verse? Because it says, by his wounds, we were healed. So if we apply it to the natural body, that means we were healed. We're not supposed to have sickness in our body at all. It does not mean that. Brothers and sisters, whether you want to believe it or not, the human body is a decaying vessel. It will not live forever. It gets sick. It ages. It will be destroyed one day. This verse is talking about spiritual healing. When you read it in its full context, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Can you see that, that declaration there? It's not you're going to be healed. You are healed already. Sin no longer has power over you. If you want to be healed, pray for healing. Jesus is a healer. It's not his stripes that heal you. It is Christ who heals you. The Bible says if you are sick, go to the elders of the church, the true church, because the elders in a false church will pray for you and you'll never be healed. Go to the elders of a church, let them lay hands on you and pray for you and you will be healed. I believe in healing, but I believe that healing comes from Jesus Christ himself. So if you pray and you pray constantly and you pray with a genuine heart, Christ is the healer. Everybody that came to Jesus and believed in him, 
He healed them. Healing is not in the hands of a man. Healing is not in the hands of somebody who's calling himself a prophet and says, I have the anointing. Healing is not in the wounds of Jesus. Physical healing, spiritual healing is. But physical healing is in Christ. If you have faith that he can heal you and you call on him and you pray like they did in the Bible, this is what you've got to learn. Practice what they did in the Bible. When people were sick with diseases, they came to Jesus. Now you want to confess verses. You want to go to a a prophet. You want to give money, sow seed, and you'll be healed. What did they do in the Bible? That's what I always tell people. Obey the Bible. What happened in Scripture is example for us to follow. What did sick people do in Scripture? They came to Jesus. So you come to Jesus. Come in faith and come in prayer. And I believe that he will heal you by the grace of God, by the will of God. Amen. The next one, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. Let's go there again and let's read it in context. Let me start reading from verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is the secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's Christ. What is he talking about? He's talking about enduring in this life. He's talking about being content. It's not a verse for everything in life. It is not a verse for going into an exam, saying I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not a verse used for every instance and every situation. People have misused the name of Christ because of wrongly quoting this verse. He's talking about being content. He's talking about enduring the hardship of the ministry. He says, I've learned a secret for me to be able to endure this. Here, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things pertaining to the work of his life and relationship with God, not all things. Read in Philippians, read the book, read what he's talking about. We cannot use scripture incorrectly and the name of Christ in vain. I'm tired today, I don't want to go to work. I'm just feeling low. Oh, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is incorrect use. And people begin to pray and declare that way. And the problem is, we then put little effort into what we're doing. And then when things, even if we put maximum effort and things don't go our way, people become discouraged. 
Paul is talking about leaning, leaning on Christ, having hope in Christ, and he can endure these things. That's the secret that he's found because Christ strengthens him. He has hope in Christ to endure and not be discouraged, to be content. The next verse is Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness, to prosper you and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This one is quoted so many times, so many times, and it is out of context. Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. I want you to listen to this now very carefully. I'm going to read from verse 1. And I want you to listen to the context of this verse. Because this portion of scripture that is used was actually a letter that Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem. In fact, let me read it. Jeremiah chapter 29 from verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. Now, Let me just pause here for a moment. I'll start again. But I want you to think of something here. If you write a letter to somebody, do you expect them to pick out a sentence or a paragraph of what you said? Let's say that you have a son. Your son's name is Paul. And your son is sick and needs surgery. So you're writing a letter. I know we don't write letters these days, but just for this example, Okay, let's say you're sending an email. Let's make it more modern. So you, you, you're typing out this email, and in the email you're explaining that my son is ill, and these are the conditions that he has, and this is the surgery that he needs. So we're writing to you to ask for your assistance because the surgery is going to cost X amount, of which we do not have the full amount. So we're asking for your assistance. And we believe that this surgery will be a success. And we believe that after the surgery, he will be, he will be well. And you say, and we are confessing as well in our trust to God that he is healed and he is well. And then you go on to say, So after the surgery is complete, we believe he'll live a prosperous life. And then people are reading through the letter, and they're like, oh, sad, oh, sad. Oh, this is bad, but the surgery seems, oh, they're saying it's 90% guaranteed that the child will be be well. Then they come to that that, uh, sentence. You put a full stop on what you were saying, and your new sentence, we believe that he is healed and he is well. And they're like, oh, the child is he's healed and he's well. There, it says it there. This is the sentence. Okay, um, line number 13, they said, it, oh, we praise God, he's healed and he's well. Okay, uh, that's it. Thank you. It doesn't make sense, right? It does, And that's what we do with the Bible. So this is the letter from Jeremiah. Let me start from verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles 
and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Saphan and Gamaria, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This is what the letter said, and this starts in verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who is the letter addressed to, first of all? It's addressed to all the Israelites, to, sorry, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's who the letter's to. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie. They are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, which is Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile, because you have said, The Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Thus saith the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all the people who dwell in the city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence. I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten that cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations 
where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, I pers- that I persistently sent you by my servants the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. You get the idea. Can you hear the full context? And that is why I say, when you read the Bible, read the Bible to search for God. Because again, this is God's relationship with his people. This is God's relationship with mankind. But what do we do? We read and we ignore all of that, that there was false prophets who were lying to the children of Israel in Babylon. So God had to use his true prophet to write a letter and send a letter to the exiles and to tell them that it's going to take 70 years before I bring you back. God says, stay there for 70 years because I know the plans I have for you. Now we quoting this verse and we're not quoting it in in a way that is trusting ourselves to God, that I have to endure hardship. We don't look at that, that I might be, because these people were sent into exile because they were disobedient to God. We don't want to know that. We just want this portion of the verse. You lied, you got yourself in a jam, you're in a bad situation. Now you say, no, but God has plans for me to prosper me and to give me a future and a hope. Again, used out of context. This is a letter to the children of Israel. You don't need this experience in your life if you are obedient to God and living in obedience to God. Read the full letter and see the context of it. I'm not saying that God does not have a plan for you. He has a plan for everyone that will willingly obey him and submit to him. His plan for the whole world, according to Peter, is that everybody come to salvation. Yes, he has a plan. But we cannot quote this verse in every circumstance and in every situation because this verse is actually talking to a people that were disobedient to God and it's talking to the children of Israel. He's encouraging the children of Israel because he sent them into exile. Do you understand what I'm saying? They didn't put them, well, they did put themselves in that situation because of disobedience. But he says, I sent you into exile. It was God who sent them there. But he's saying, I've not turned away from you. It's a part of my plan for you. I have a plan to bring you back, to give you a future, to give you hope. I've sent you to Israel, into exile, to, to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, but I've not forsaken you. It's not about prosperity. It's not about individuals getting rich. Third John chapter 1 and verse 2. Beloved, I wish all things that you may as prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. Now this, this verse used by the Word of Faith movement, again used out of context, because what they are saying that in the Word of Faith movement is that if you are righteous, if your soul is prospering, then naturally you will prosper in the physical and be in good health. My problem with that is before I read the verse, like I said earlier, there are people who are experiencing deterioration in their physical body because of age. There are people who are 
faithful believers in God, but are living their lives in wheelchairs. They are living lives with disabilities. They are people who are faithful believers who are blind. They are people who are faithful believers who are sitting in prison right now because of being persecuted for the gospel. They are people who are faithful believers who are living in slavery right now because they chose to be faithful to the gospel. They are people who live in the worst countries in the world with high rates of poverty and they are living in extreme poverty but are faithful to God. Can we say that all these individuals, even those who are imprisoned or in slavery because of the gospel, can we say that all these individuals are not true believers? Can we say Paul was not a true believer because we've seen by his own testimony that he has had abundance and he has had lack. He's eaten plenty of food, but he's also gone hungry. And we actually know that Paul spent most of his time in prison as a believer. So can we say he was not a true believer? I want you to listen to the full context of this verse. I'll read from verse 1. 3 John chapter 1, verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, and indeed you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. So what do you notice about this? It's a greeting. He's starting his letter with a greeting. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. He's starting the letter with a greeting. When you write a letter and he says, I hope this letter, like if we were writing a modern letter now, I hope this letter finds you well and in good health, even as your soul is well and in good health. I'm not saying that you're going to prosper because your soul is prospering. I'm not saying things are going to go well for you because things are going well for your soul. That's not what he's saying. He's just writing a greeting. It's a nice thing to say, but it is a greeting. Let everything prosper for you, and may you be in good health. There obviously were some that were not in good health. He's not declaring that if you're righteous and if you're living for God, that everything in your life is going to go well. He's not saying that. The problem with using these verses out of context is that it destroys the faith of so many people. Yet, when you look at the life or the lives of the apostles who wrote these things, they weren't physically prosperous. They were going through hardship, persecution. Most of them were even martyred. But using a verse out of context, and people believe this, we need to start reading the full letters, the full chapters, so that we don't start quoting things incorrectly. Let's go to okay, Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. How we heard this verse over and over again. I remember I even used to quote this verse and we were taught in church, turn from your wicked ways, pray and God will heal the land. Until today, the charismatic churches are still quoting this verse in their prayer meetings. And this is the deal. People will be repenting and praying. And we've been doing this. I know that, you know, in a lot of nations, and especially where we live, things started getting difficult. You're talking about droughts and famine and um, financial difficulty in, in our nation. It started happening in the late 90s and the economy started struggling and all in the late 90s and we would quote this verse and we'd be taught this verse and I, I was a young boy back then and we we would taught this verse and we'd say that repent and pray and God will heal the land but my question is we did that why was the land never healed we did it we did it for 20 years we did it at every prayer meeting. We repented. We turned from our wicked ways. And the, they say if God's people, it's not up to anyone out there. It's up to us, God's people. So let's repent. We did. God forgave us. I know he forgave us because of Christ. We obtained forgiveness through Christ. Why did he not heal the land? Why did things progressively get worse? In fact, globally right now, why did things get progressively get worse globally? Why? Because it's used out of context. And they say that, oh, it's the power of humility in prayer, surrender to God, and oh, and then God will do things for you. It's not about doing things for me. It's about healing the land. Every time we came to pray for our nation, we were told, pray, humble yourself, turn to God, and he'll heal your land. And the land got worse. Again, I need to just emphasize this. The Bible is a testimony about God, his dealings with his people. Look for God in Scripture. We have promises. We have blessings. We have answered prayers. All of this through Christ. But Picking verses out and using them out of context is discouraging for people. We are supposed to learn. What did Jesus tell the apostles when he sent them out? Teach them to observe everything I have taught you. The definition of faith is believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And the reward is with God. He decides the reward because quoting these out of context and then people are prophesying, the country is going to rise, things are going to be well. Next year, this is the year of whatever, because the country, because God's people prayed and he's restoring the land. And then you hear there's a famine in the land. The immediate context of this verse is after Solomon dedicated the temple, God comes to him and he gives him reassurances he gives him warnings it says the lord appeared to him at night and said i have heard your prayer and chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices when i shut the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land 
or send a plague among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. This verse is tied up with Israel and the temple. And yes, from time to time, because of their disobedience, God might send judgment upon the land in the form of drought, locusts, or pestilence. He says, if you serve other gods, if you worship other gods, I will take Israel from my land, which I have given them, and I'll reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Can you see this? Whose land? Whose people first? God's people, Israel. Whose land? God's land. Whose temple? God's temple. The Bible is about God. When you read scripture, are you searching for God? He says the temple will become a heap of rubble and everyone who passes by, they'll be appalled. And they'll say, why has the Lord done such things? And people will answer and say, because these people, these Israelites, have forsaken the Lord, their God of their ancestors. This is not about global economies. This is not about money. This is about people's relationship with God. This is about people who were supposed to obey God. And God is telling them that if you disobey me, I will bring disaster on you. If you worship other gods in my land, in my temple, I will bring disaster on you. But if you repent, I'll heal my land. I'll restore you. It's not about every single country in the world. According to Bible prophecy, according to Jesus himself, the world, the character, the nature of the world must deteriorate in the last days. Evil will rise. There will be wars, rumors of wars, famines, droughts, pestilence in the last days. But now, instead of rejoicing when prophecy is fulfilled, meaning the redemption and the salvation of humanity draws near. We're praying out of context. God heal the land. God heal the land. And then people ask me, they know Bible prophecy, but they ask me, why is God letting this happen? And then I say, but it's prophecy in the Bible. It's written in the Bible. This is meant to happen. But God said that if we pray, he'll heal our land. No, he did not. He said that to the children of Israel, not to the people of your nation. Again, people's faith is lost and people are discouraged because of living a verse out of context. I need to repeat this again. Read the Bible to search for God. And when you find God through Christ, you found and discovered a whole new world. You found and discovered everything sufficient for you to endure this life, to overcome sin and temptation through Christ. It's not about cars and houses and prosperity. It's about being with God, being kept by God, walking with Him in absolute obedience. But if you're looking through the Bible and picking out verses out of context to find materialism, and physical prosperity 
in this world and money and cars and houses, you're not going to find it. You want those things? Go out there into the world. The world has a system. If you work hard, if you have great ideas, they'll give you prosperity. But for a believer, for a believer, put your head down, work hard, trust God, keep yourself pure, get papers that can get you higher up positions in the marketplace out there, and you will prosper. That's what so it that takes, prosper. hard work out there, not quoting verses out of context. The next verse used out of context is Proverbs 23. Let's go there. Okay, Proverbs 23 and verse 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. Can you see that? This verse is used, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And you're taught, think positively about yourself, which is not a bad thing. But what they tell you is that you can create a world for yourself by thinking positively, by speaking positively, by um, telling lies. You know, for example, if I'm down with a bad flu and somebody asks, how are you? I'm not supposed to say, hey, I got a bad flu. No, I'm supposed to say I'm well, I'm blessed, I'm healthy. Because if I believe it, it's going to come to pass. Now, that's a bit of a Freemason kind of thinking. You know, there's this book that went around back in the day called The Secret. Terrible book for believers because it's not godly. It makes you idolize things. Terrible book. But basically, the concept of that book is then taken into the church. Think positive, And when you think positive about yourself, speak positive. Believe in your heart that you're a millionaire and then you'll say it and you'll be a millionaire. And people have been doing this for years and years, but it's out of context. Some people have even been praying, Lord, in my heart, you put this in my heart for me to think of myself prospering. <sighs> Listen to this. Proverbs 23 and verse 6. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye. Neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with you. It's saying don't eat food from an evil man. Don't desire the nice food that he's got because the man's heart is evil. He's appearing to be hospitable, to be nice. He's appearing to want you to enjoy the food. So he says to you, eat, drink, enjoy. But his heart is evil. As he thinketh in his heart, that's who he truly is. Don't eat his food because his heart is not with you. He says, the morsel which you have eaten, you'll vomit and lose your sweet words. Because they say, oh yeah, we lay out a spread, eat. But the heart is evil, so when you eat, it's like, eat freely. 
Then when you eat, did you see how much they ate? No, that's not godly. That's not right. His heart is cursing you, but he's putting out a spread for you. He's saying, eat, enjoy. But as he thinketh in his heart, his genuine nature is in his heart. That's who he is. What he's presenting to you is not what is in his heart. Again, we've been saying for years, as a man thinketh, as a man thinketh. But that's not it. Then let's go to the last one. A lot of people love this one, Romans 8.28. Let's go to the book of Romans. Okay, this is Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. All right. And then it goes on to 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay, now this verse, the idea here is that, you know, you hear people going through a bad time and they say, I know all things work together for good. Then you get people who make poor decisions. So, for example, somebody wants to invest some money in something and then they are told, don't invest money in that thing. And they go ahead and do it and lose all their money. They say that, no, God has a better plan for me. I know all things work together for good to those who love God. Somebody is not looking after themselves. Somebody is reckless, driving, speeding on the highway. They have an accident and they have to have their foot amputated or something. And it's like, no, God has a reason for this. I know all things work together for good. I remember a preacher that was arrested in, in the United States for tax fraud. And what he had said is that God told him, no, all things work together for good. You've been arrested for tax fraud, but I don't have a ministry in prison. So I'm sending you into prison because all things work together for good. Come on, people. Listen to the verse. Okay, let me read this to you. And we know, so that means we are certain that all things work together for good to them that love God. Jesus defines to us what it is to love him. If you love me, keep my words. So if you are walking in obedience, you love God and all things work together for good for you. But let's keep reading. To them who are the called according to his purpose. All right. So all things work together for good to those that love God, number one. And number two, who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So this is the good that is happening in your life. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So what is the purpose of God? Because again, this is used to say, oh, I'm called by God. I'm anointed. I'm called by God. What is God's purpose? That all men come to salvation. And that's why he says so that Christ will be the firstborn among many brethren. So the working of the good, you're going through a tough time, but you're learning 
patience. In that difficulty, you're learning to pray. You're learning to give your heart to God and all things will work out for good so that you are conformed to the image of His Son. It's not about materialism. It's not about carnality. You cannot use that every time you make a mistake or every time you desire something that you cannot afford. It is about being conformed in the image of Christ so that he can be the firstborn among many brethren. You understand? This is important. I've repeated this over and over again. The Bible is about God. Read the Bible for it to pierce your heart, for it to speak to you for it to make you an obedient believer or disciple of Christ. Don't read the Bible searching to pick out verses that are not relevant to you, for one, and two, that are not that will then be used out of context in the wrong way. A verse, a truth used out of context is a lie. That's it. I hope you heard. My point for doing this is to bring you to a place of truth because scripture is truth. And when you manipulate truth, that truth becomes a lie. When you take a part of a truth, that truth, the part that you've taken, becomes a lie. The example I gave of an email you sent to family members trying to raise funds for your sick child and they pick out one sentence and you're telling them that the child is sick and you need funding, but you're speaking in faith saying that we believe that he is well and he'll be okay and has a future, and they take that that sentence out and they apply that sentence as a truth. What does it mean? They've made a lie out of that truth because the truth is you still need the money for the surgery. You don't have it, but they're saying to you, no, but you said he's healed and well. You get me? Do not... Pick verses out. Read the story of the Bible as a whole. Find God in Scripture and you will be blessed. Trust me, you will be blessed. God bless you. Thank you for joining today. My name's Tom Pullen. This has been the School of Obedience. Remember, as true disciples of Christ, we learn, we practice, we teach, because that's the only way to do it. Amen. I'll see you in the next one.